You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening on this rather cold evening uh, and also welcome everybody who is watching us online. We're live streaming this event as always uh, here from the Trinity Long Room Hub. My name is Daniel Fass. I'm the convener of the Identities and Transformation Research Theme, which is one of the five research themes uh, based here in the Hub. It, this is a very interdisciplinary research theme, which you will also see in the composition of the panel tonight that is going to talk to you about national and cultural heritage. So I'll introduce each of the panelists who will speak to you for about 15 minutes or so, and then at the end we have a Q&A session about 30 minutes, uh, which should get us going until about 7.45 or so. Like every city in the world, Dublin is faced with multiple and complex challenges, particularly when it comes to integrating international policies into planning and design in the city. Meeting the needs of communities and as well as businesses, whilst also meeting global sustainability and climate-related agreements, is not an easy one. Uh, so what we do tonight is look behind some of the issues at the interface between natural and cultural heritage. And to do so is, first of all, uh, Marcus Collier, He's based in the School of Natural Sciences in the Botany Department, to be precise, and he specializes in uh, social ecological systems thinking and the environmental governance issues at the nature-culture interface. He's carried out research in land use and land use change, resilience thinking and societal transitioning, collaborative management and planning, urban and rural governance, biodiversity impact, as well as novel landscapes and landscapes elements. And notable examples of his research include the contentious policy issues of biomass or bioenergy land use policies and implications, afforestation policies and acidification processes, field boundaries and agro-environmental change, resource use and after-use policies, rewilding, GM crops and biodiversity, marine and coastal governance, cultural ecosystem services, well-being and in recent years, urban resilience and sustainable development. So without further ado, the floor is yours. Welcome, everybody. Enjoy. Thank you very much. I, I've forgotten I did all that in the past. Um, my name is uh, Marcus. I, I am in the botany department, uh, but I'm not a botanist. Like so many of our, uh, our, our positions, we find ourselves in one department or one school, but yet we come at it from another angle. But we still all uh, fit into the same uh, mold at some stage. Um, my current research, uh, I'm, I'm leading a large European project, a 12 million euro project called Connecting Nature. I'm not going to talk too much about Connecting Nature, but I'm going to talk about the subject of Connecting Nature in my presentation. And it's largely uh, to do with cities. Um, so you will have known, you might, you'll probably have heard over the years that by 2050, 2060, the vast majority of humans will be urban dwellers. All of humans will be urbanized in some form or other. Hopefully they'll have broadband at that stage. Uh, but vast majority of humans will be urban, uh, urban dwellers. And in many countries, that's already the case. It, has, it was the case in France and in the UK at the turn of the 19th, 20th century. And it is the case of a lot of countries nowadays. But as we get to 2050, uh, practically every country in the world will have uh, the vast majority, between 70 and another more uh, accurate estimate of getting closer to 80% of people will be living in cities. So this puts cities in an interesting position. It puts cities in, in, at, the, at the forefront of fulfilling our needs, our needs to work, live, and play. Um, and we're constantly striving as citizens of cities to find a, a way that we can do all that, have good quality of life, good health and well-being, and also good living. And, and then, of course, for those of us with children or dependents, we think of them as, as, as in that role as well. So we start to see that um, we need now to, to find ways to access green spaces and to access nature, natural areas. For, for a good deal of urban population, in, in, depending on, on the statistics the World Health Organization is talking about, that at the time, at the time we're, we're mostly living in cities, a good proportion of our citizenry will be on the poverty level will have around um, between 12 and 1500 calories per day. So that would be considered just a bare amount to, to live by. So about a third of the human population will not be able to afford to go to a national park or a rural area to see nature. They won't be able to. 
most people will access nature through whatever device is available at the time, screen. Um, and they will, there will be an increasing demand. We know that there will be an increasing demand to see or to touch and to be in green areas in cities. <clears throat> and so this will change. It change, will change our cultural and our social expectations as we, as we go forward. And it will also change the way we make cities, the way we view cities. If you've, I tend to view cities as a, a tournament of voices or a tournament of values it's in some ways, but a tournament of voices. Everybody wants a different part of themselves to be reflected in the city. There's a demand for, for more places for people to live, for more housing, more social housing, but then there's also a demand for more open spaces, more recreational spaces. There's a demand for, for transport, and yet there's a demand for removal of certain transport and other types of transport. So it's a, co a competition, a tournament of, of voices of the, the urban body, the citizenry of a city. And it has been for, for, for many uh, centuries, but in the recent years, the recent decades, this voice has become more and more competitive with each other. And so nature and green areas are going to have to compete in there somehow. We're going to have to find a way to, to incorporate nature into our cities. Um, so I, uh, this is where I, I come in and this is where a lot of my research is in this interaction between social systems and ecological systems. Um, we are humans, we are of course part of the ecological system. We tend, to, we have for, for many centuries felt ourselves apart. We've had this nature, uh, uh, human nature schism between humans and nature. But real, in reality we are 100% part of nature, which we'll, we'll, we'll hear about later on. And um, in this situation then we start to think about how, how can we um, incorporate nature in such a way that it is, I suppose, both beneficial to the nature itself, the biodiversity, in, 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 the, in other words, we'd like to see more plants, more animals, more wildlife. We'd like to be able to vi visit them, or then visit us, probably. And, but at the same time, um, we also realize that, that we want nature to do things for us again. We still, nature has been doing things for us forever and ever and ever. It's uh, been providing some food and fresh water and, and, and so on. And that process continues. And so, We've been used to, a long t for a long time, hearing about nature in the, using the phrases of problems. There's a problem with too much nature, or the wrong nature, like invasive species or weeds or so on. Uh, or there's a problem with nature and that is extinction and, and biodiversity loss. So where I'm coming at the process is looking at nature as a solution, as being part of the solution. And it is a phrase that has cropped up and has, has just really emerged in the scientific discourse in the last eight to nine years uh, referring to nature-based solutions. This idea that we can use nature as a technology. So a good example of what a nature-based solution would be, some of you will have been aware of this, is if, you were, if it was daylight, if you go out the steps here, you'll see the roof beside us here is a sedum roof, it's a green roof, it's a living roof. And it was put there, I think I suspect it was put there for aesthetic reasons, but let's pretend it was put there deliberately to, as, to assist with absorbing moisture and to attenuate water on the roof so that it doesn't gush out into the drains and start flooding us down in the museum building or wherever we get flooded every time it rains here. Um, so a nature-based solution like a living roof, or if anyone has seen our new building, the, the business school at the other end of campus, you'll see that there's living walls uh, on the outside of it. Um, these are these types of technologies that can that, that essentially use nature. Yes, we're using nature again, we're abusing nature, but we're doing it in a way that brings more of it into the city, and our job is to try and make it more diverse. So the goal of nature-based solutions is to do several things. It's, it's a multiple win scenario we're trying to get across. We're trying to get um, more nature in the cities. We're trying to get people to appreciate this because of the work it does for us. And we see cities, for example, like London or Singapore, where a large number of their buildings have been retrofitted for living roofs. And now they're not only just the monocrop, as you'll see just beside us here, but they will have biodiversity built into them. So, for example, the London Olympic site is a really good example of a nature-based solution in action. And it, it contributes significant amounts to the reduction in flooding in the city at certain times of the year. And so we can measure this and we can quantify it. Um, so if we look at um, nature as a, as a technology, or we look at um, it's, a, it's a type of technology which we feel is beneficial to us, well, obviously there's a lot of things that go with that and, and um, it changes how we design our cities. 
it changes how we, our relationship with nature and what, what the ultimate goal of sustainability scientists, remember, sustainability scientists, whether they're biologists or as well as, all of us are climatologists, all of us work in the crisis discipline. Okay, we're all, we're all at a crisis point, or there because it's a crisis. And we spend all our time trying to address and find mechanisms for dealing with this crisis, whether it's biodiversity loss or climate change or overpopulation, underpopulation of food and so on. We're all there trying to tackle this. So our relationship with nature is something that we're trying to encourage because it's in regreening people and bringing people closer to nature that we will begin to encourage people to be more sustainable in the wider elements of their lives. So we know that if people are working with nature, and I've worked with volunteers over the years taking them to do tree planting and so on, you can see that over a period of time, their behavior changes. And the solution, the main solution to climate change, we heard it here, we've heard it a thousand times, is behavioral change, changing our behavior and how we, and how we do things. So people who engage with nature are more likely to be uh, sustainable in other forms of their daily living. So this nature, the first main point that we want to get across is by viewing nature as a technology, not only are you encouraging nature in the cities, not only are you encouraging innovation and in how we manage it and how we, how, we, how we design, but also you're encouraging physical contact with the very thing that will inspire us to be more uh, environmentally conscious and more sustainability focused as we go forward, not just our generation, but the generations that come after, remembering what I said at the beginning, that there will be more and more of us squashed into cities uh, in, in, in the future. And we know contact with nature, the second area I really wanted to focus on, was we know that, it is, it, it, we know that nature is no longer a, a luxury. We know that natural things are, in fact, extremely important to us medicinally. We know, and we've now begun to quantify in the last five or six years, we've got more scientific papers that have specifically examined this. But people who contact, who have direct contact with nature, even if it's 20 minutes a day, will have better health outcomes. We know that their stress levels will be low, especially if they're pregnant. We know that they will have higher well-being, um, self-reported well-being, and we know that they will be happier. So we know, and I, we can see it now, in some uh, parts of medicine where doctors are prescri prescribing trips to nature, get out and go see nature. Not go out and go to the gym and get exercise. You can do the same exercise in a park as you do in a gym, but your blood pressure will be lower. We have these different measurements, so we know that physical contact with nature, even if it's just the sight of nature through your window, um, or a virtual one where you stick a phone in front of your face and pretend it's, it's, it's reality. We know this from the studies that done in, in space with the, the space station. We know that people's blood, uh, uh, blood pressure will go down. We know their stress levels. But we also know that students will have higher concentration levels. And we also know that people in business will have higher innovation levels. So we see nature as a technology on a broader sense, not just in terms of how it's, it's it, uh, uh, touching people and touching people's lives, but we also know that it actually inadvertently has a beneficial effect that we can actually now start to quantify. The biggest problem we have over the years is not being able to quantify and validate how nature is in our lives. So um, this, is the, this is the second message. And the third part of this process, the third part of bringing more nature into cities, is it cannot be imposed in the old-fashioned, top-down way of we go out there, we throw a park in there, and you know what, you go to damn well like it, and that's the end of that. And that you know, we don't care how far you have to drive to get there. We found, through the work that we're doing and other projects like ours, that the co-creation process, the collaborative process, where we work with communities to develop their own kind of nature, works fundamentally better because people will design their own. If you ask people to design a park, as we did in my previous project with Weaver Park, go out there and design a park. We gave them loads of chalk, draw on the ground, and work, what, what, see what came out of it. The park that's come back there has got practically everything in it. It's got playgrounds, skategrounds, um, it's got all sorts of corners for nature. It's in this, a small area, it's about eight times the size of this room. We have a, a, a rather uh, interesting area. It is one of the most visited, I don't know, Mary, I might, might uh, know more than I do, one of the most visited areas in Dublin, not because it's new, but because it's quite unique, and mostly because it was co-created. So using people to design your park is also a form of validation. So crowd sourcing of, of information is also a form of crowd validation. 
And that means that the people, the park is more likely to be a success and is more likely to last and is less likely to be damaged or vandalized. We've got examples of this from all over the world. So I just wanted to, to introduce the, the idea of nature as a solution, nature-based solutions. Um, we have lots of questions, like what is the role of this nature uh, in, in, in the future? What is the role for wild nature? This is the next stage up, which we haven't even begun to look at. What about bringing a little bit of wildness in there? All of you who have a fear of rats, spiders, cockroaches, and those of you, like my mother, hate pigeons because of the thing they do to her laundry line. And uh, all of you who don't like weeds and dandelions and so on, can there is there a role for these in your in our new nature in cities? Culturally, the biggest barrier to bringing wildness into cities is what we perceive of as the danger, the threat of nature. And what we're trying to do is in our research, uh, our research is very practical oriented. We're trying to gauge people's appreciation of wanting to have nature at the same time. That's 101. The next thing is to try and change their minds to accept the type of nature that we know has got a higher level of biodiversity. More wasps, guys, more bees, more rats. Well, maybe not more rats, but certainly more foxes anyway. So the types of things that people go, I don't want them near my neighborhood. We have the NIMBY thing. It's not a land, it's not a windmill we're talking about here or an incinerator. It's, it's a nature park that is slightly wild. How is that going to impact on our lives? So these are the areas uh, that are, for anyone who is interested in, in, in going on and developing some further research, it's still terra incognita. We still don't know how we're going, what our cities are largely going to be like. We have got templates, Singapore and, and other, other cities that try this, but none of them really have the golden magic bullet. And I don't think there is one. I think it's very specific culturally to each country, to each city, and then down to each neighborhood, and right down to each individual family. Judging by the fact that each garden is different means that each person views nature in a slightly different uh, way. And thank you very much. Thank you, Marcus. Our next speaker is Marianne Harris. Uh, Marianne wears two hats. On the one hand, she's a PhD student at UCB at present. On the other, she's the senior executive park superintendent with Dublin City Council. And her professional practice, research and teaching are in the planning, design and management of public green spaces for biodiversity con con conservation. She provides in-house expertise in landscape ecology and design for strategic infrastructure projects, urban master plans, environmental assessments, climate change adaptation and green infrastructural strategies. This includes also writing landscape policies for Dublin City and contributing to national policy and legislative reviews. She's managed park construction and restoration projects, including site supervision and health and safety management. And she has coordinated a multi-agency review report and strategy for UNESCO Biosphere in Dublin Bay. And this innovative project applies UNESCO criteria to a capital city's green infrastructure to create a model for urban biodiversity management by citizens. And we look forward to hearing more from you now. Marian, please join us. Thank you. Um, and I should add that I am a graduate of Trinity College, <laughs> where I learned uh, environmental science for my master's. And uh, my undergraduate, I studied in uh, Cornell University in landscape architecture. So I'm very interested at how we actually build things differently, design and plan things differently than maybe we would have done in the past. And moving forward with um, our national and citywide biodiversity and climate change emergencies, respectively. Um, now we have some political will, perhaps, so now we need real solutions that actually work and that um, the community can live with. <laughs> So uh, a lot of my work through the years has been on uh, community engagement and people participating in making plans for the area and who, uh, who will participate and how that will guide the decision-making process, how to encourage people to participate in that process as well. And sometimes some people feel more or less empowered and so how can we get different information and ideas feeding into the process? So I will just mention to you um, a few short topics. One I think we should talk about is um, 
what encourages people or motivates people to act for nature, as opposed to just themselves. <laughs> and uh, we have some good examples in Dublin of people doing that, actually. So I think um, when we talk about, um, at the moment, we have a lot of uh, political interest, again, in green issues. We have a lot more awareness uh, of the topic in the national debate. We have uh, campaigns like Extinction Rebellion, where people are trying to bring that into the public eye. So there's this interest in activism again. But that is not necessarily new. <laughs> Um, what is new, I think, is maybe to try to vet our policies to see who is benefiting from the decisions we're making. So when we are managing our ecosystem in a certain way, who is deriving what benefits? And I think we're looking more increasingly at the collectivization of those benefits, as opposed to the trade-offs we lived with in the past. I also think, um, you know, like, there are a certain percentage of us, usually those of us who work in the environmental sector, would fall into the category of being altruistic personality types. And many environmental scientists do have this personality trait. So they, they make arguments that are very convincing to themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and they can't understand why everybody does not agree with this. But you know, there are also people who are narcissists and they will only ever do things for themselves, often at the expense of everybody else. And they actually can be quite successful in business. And we see that around the world quite a lot today. But the narcissists can tend to be CEOs as well, you know, um, because they're very ruthless and they achieve very strongly. Um, and then most of people fall into the middle and they don't want to do bad things or the wrong thing. They try to do right but they still have to do for themselves. At the end of the day, they have to look after themselves. And that's the way most people look at the world. So how we can actually make people feel that they're getting some benefit out of it and doing the right thing. And this is where the ecosystem services comes in, is to get as many benefits for most people and hopefully not at the expense of nature. So the biosphere is a very good example of this community activism for nature because actually the original biosphere uh, for Dublin was not Dublin Bay, it was just Northville Island, which is a very small area where nobody lives, okay? And what actually happened was, in the 1970s, there was a lot of community activism in Dublin, and particularly some of the faculty from Trinity College, like uh, Professor Dave Jeffrey, and some of the other faculty, uh, and also, you know, people who were scientists and scientific community, in state bodies were opposing various proposals that were happening in Dublin Bay. And you also have people from the legal community and the political community coming together. And you have people like, uh, some of you may remember, a counselor called Sean Dublin Bay Loftus. He changed his name legally to have Dublin Bay in his name. And he actually had a legal background. And you know, it actually changed the planning legislation in Ireland at the time because they had the first real national oral hearing on planning, an oral hearing process where everybody's heard, that's the whole point of an oral hearing, and people come in to bear witness and give their evidence, be it, you know, Professor David Jeffrey or the person who lives up the street. And, it, and it's a very transparent way for people to demonstrate uh, their values they have for nature in this case. But it was interesting because it was actually state bodies that were proposing these different projects. There were energy projects. There were proposals by the Dublin Corporation at the time to do landfilling. They have been doing landfilling around the bay. Um, there were other proposals for a road to go through the bay you know, that were being mooted. So uh, what actually happened was people opposed it. They had an oral hearing. At the end of that, the people who had spent the time putting that together, they were successful in stopping these developments for the bay. But they had accumulated a lot of very good evidence uh, of its importance scientifically. And that was what was brought to UNESCO and got the designation for North Bull Island. So it was, they got together with the information and said, let's do something after this, you know? So they, so they did that and published a book as well uh, on North Bull Island. And then in the 1990s, um, the communities got the city council on board, the councillors, and got uh, a special immunity order declared for North Bull Island. 
So all of this is coming from community activism for nature. And uh, that was a long process, actually, because they had to get national agreement. And the, it was the national government that were refusing to adopt it at the time. They had to get a minister for the environment to agree. And it took three different ministers before it was finally agreed, even though it was the will of the people. So, so the biosphere has this history of empowerment. But interestingly, biospheres are protected areas that must have people in them. So this idea of humans disturbing the ecosystem and you know, this idea of control of nature. So, so people move in cities and they want to control and tame nature. You know? And they do things like they fill in the wetlands in Dublin because they fear disease, let's say, you know, which was a real fear at the time. And they want to tame nature and civilize the wilderness. And then we start having protected areas for nature where we're the ones who are being tamed. You can't go in them, you know, and there's all this control. Uh, and we're going to somehow reserve nature, nature reserves, away from people. And that's going to protect them. But now, with climate change, we know this is not actually foolproof either. Um, because, unfortunately, climate change impacts will supersede red lines that you can draw on a map. So the biosphere represents a um, a bit of a compromise, but a kind of this idea again, how can we work to benefit but not do harm? So the biosphere is including people in the ecosystem, in the protected area. And the idea for Dublin Bay and all the biospheres that UNESCO have throughout the globe are that people are coming together to manage in cooperation and to manage the resources that they're benefiting from for those species and those habitats. The advisor program, way back in the 70s and 80s, started to do research. UNESCO funded a whole load of research projects on cities as ecological systems. And this was actually very um, controversial at the time, because many conservation biologists refused to accept people can be part of nature like this at all. People are bad, they disturb nature. But now, increasingly, this is where we are today, is looking at cities as ecological systems, human ecosystems, where nature and people are interlinked. And we're actually managing for nature, restoring, in some instances, the ecosystem, or trying to adapt to the new realities that we have to deal with. Um, and I suppose the other thing I would talk about is citizen science. So the Biosphere is supposed to enable people to actively manage their own environment for themselves, but also for the future, for sustainable development. And um, in this, we look more to incorporate people's own experience and observations. So what citizen science does is it gives people uh, a role to play in trying to share their own observations of nature uh, their environment, their, their passing through, that they recall from long ago. And the value of these observations is becoming increasingly evident, where um, we're finding, like, say, an example in one of the biospheres in Canada, where there was a school teacher, and he had an interest in botany, and he was just a simple school teacher, but he got his students to record when the flowers came out on trees, or when the fruits came out, when the leaves came out. And that was like about a hundred, well, almost a hundred years ago. This is now becoming the basis for a whole study because of climate change. That information is now key data for looking at what has changed in that locality, what climate change. So you don't realize how much the value of some kid's observation is, right? I mean, this was structured, you know, guided observation. But it is actually being used by scientists. So the value of everyday people and their observations, people who know their environment, can be extremely important like this. And if it motivates people to act in that way, and if it matters enough to people, they will look after it. Um, we also know that people have what's called ecological memory. So if you don't have that exposure to nature, you don't have this formation of ecological memory, and therefore, you won't perceive the loss. But if you have this appetite that you develop for nature and a sensory experience that is very real to you, then you have an, a very deep level of understanding of that particular component of nature. And you can feel that loss as well. 
and you won't want that sensation. <laughs> so it will also motivate you. But if you live in a place devoid of nature, if cities are designed to be compact cities that will work very fast, and your garbage is collected very quickly, and you get from A to B in three minutes, and you cycle down the river, and you get there super fast, but there's no river left, because you've cycled over it, and there's no habitat anymore to look at, because you got there three minutes quicker, didn't you? Isn't that what you wanted? If that's what you have, how do you develop any sort of ecological memory then to associate with? Um, so, so part of, we talk about raising biodiversity awareness, but it is much easier if we can do this in cities where people can actually have that contact, ideally at a young age. And um, one of the people who um, was very supportive of the biosphere is now working in the top level of the European Commission in the Department of Environment. And he uh, actually was telling me, you know, his whole uh, you know, ecological memory, because when he was growing up in North Dublin, in, in Clontarf, he grew up, he used to go to Bull Island to catch frogs, you know, <laughs> which catching frogs in of itself may not be so pro-nature, but nonetheless, <laughs> it intrigued him. So he started to understand the frogs where they were, and he started to explore this habitat. And he could remember, too, that it was wetter. There were, the marshes were wetter back then. And how he knows is because he was wading through them, and he knew where he could begin and end his walk, and all these kind of memories. So he can see the changes, you know, in the hydrology, because he remembers. But also, it got him very interested in this idea of nature and birds. He was very into birds and observing the birds. And now he's head in the environment for the whole European Commission. So you see, you can actually have this kind of... Um, experience that uh, gives you kind of a grounding with nature, a relationship of your own on some level with nature. Beyond as well, of course, the health benefits and mental health as well. Hospital admissions are lower, all of these things. But, but at the end of the day, if we limit people from nature and we, we don't encourage that interaction, or we have the city business as usual and nature over there, and we don't try to integrate that, then we don't actually develop that sense. It's not very sustainable to expect everybody to drive to the Wicklow Mountains every weekend to find nature. And we don't need to, because there is nature in the city. And Dublin is very uh, lucky, because despite everything we have done to it over the years, nature is still persisting. And we have some very high-value nature in terms of we have on our rivers still many of the species that are actually elsewhere in Europe diminished. We have living rivers. We have um, salmon and trout in, a, in our major rivers, you know, which is a really good sign for what we have for the future. So in terms of, if you think to the community activism and the appetite that people have had for nature in this city, there should be a means through the biosphere, through other initiatives, for people to continue to build on that for the future. Right now, there's a lot of binary choices that people want to present in planning terms. Do you want housing or do you want nature? Do you want to have birds in the bay? Or do you want you know, housing? Do you want a hospital? No, those are not binary choices. And we will all wind up at the hospital if we don't have anywhere for nature, okay? We'll have lots of hospitals and we'll be in them all the time, you know? Uh, like, you know. We need some kind of balance in our lives to center that. And I think um, I would say that the protected areas do not have to be protected from us if we are the protectors of those areas, you know? So while we have to, uh, yes, at European level and global level, some of these species are threatened, so we're protecting them as protected areas. We should never view it as it's, it's to teach us the lesson, <laughs> you know? It's not for that purpose. It's to signify that we are uh, having something here that has to be protected for a very wide audience of people and for uh, global interactions that those species have. So when we are protecting them, we're actually also protecting them in Africa and in the Canadian Arctic, you know, and in, and in Russia and places where they're coming from back and forth to Dublin. So, uh, we have some species disappearing because of the fact that in Africa they're under threat, those habitats that they go to, or 
for example, some of the birds are flying over the Sahara Desert, but the Sahara Desert is actually getting bigger because of climate change desertification is happening. Notice that the desert is expanding. So for these birds to fly here is a much more onerous task than it used to be. Um, and then when they get here, what did they arrive to? And if we can afford space for them, because um, uh, as the spaces are shrinking, do they reserve a slot for when they get here? <laughs> you know, are we going to are we going to artificially construct habitats now? Is that what we're is that the compromise we come up with? So these are real questions we have to look at in the city now. And yes, in some instances we are artificially doing things, but there are there are there is scope also to. Um, well, I won't say the word restoration because I think in Dublin, you know, we have a city that is over a thousand years old. So I don't know what you're restoring to sometimes if you say restoration. But definitely we can do some recovery of the patient, I think. And we can do some rehabilitation, <laughs> you know. So I think um, just to say that I'm reluctant to think of it as uh, that we have to limit people to have nature. And I'm reluctant to say that we have to make those binary choices. Uh, what I think we have to accept is that we have to try to find that compromise where we can still achieve what we need to achieve for ourselves, but that we're moving in a direction that still allows us to um, have that level of understanding of the place we're in and how to maintain that memory of what we had once. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Marianne. And last but not least, uh, Michael Cronin. Michael is Professor and Chair of the French Department here in Trinity. He taught in the University of Tours, the École Normale Supérieure, and Kashan, and was Director of the Centre for Translation and Textual Studies at DCU. He's an elected member of the Royal Irish Academy, the Academia Europea, and is an officer in the Autre de Palme Académique. He's published extensively on language, culture, translation, and travel writing. Among his works are Across the Lines, Travel Language Translation, Translation and Identity, The Expanding World Towards the Politics of micro Microspection, and Eco-Translation, Translation and Ecology in the Age of the Anthropocene. And, and he has it in front of him, uh, the most recent publication, Irish and Ecology, <laughs> that has just uh, uh, been published. His current interests are in developing eco-criticism uh, in relation to modern languages and translation, exploring the notion of translation trauma in relation to population displacement, and investigating language identities as mediated through travel. Michael, you're very welcome. That's great. Uh, thank you very much for the, uh, the introduction. And I'm particularly pleased that uh, tonight, what we have is, is, a, is a dialogue between the, the two ends of the house as well, between uh, science and, and, and culture, the debate that doesn't happen uh, anything as often enough as it should. Uh, because one thing that's very, very striking um, when Will, Marx, and Marianne were presenting is so many of the issues that they were talking about were cultural issues. We can describe them as behavioral issues, we can describe them as anthropological issues. Um, but basically what we're talking about is the way in which uh, human culture, the kind of stories that we have, the myths that we have, uh, construct uh, particular uh, objects. And of course one of these is nature itself, the way in which uh, we think about or conceive of, of, of nature is something that was very much kind of culturally constructed uh, in the 18th century, partly as a result of the Industrial Revolution, the romantic poets trying to make sense of the ecological dislocation that was happening at that particular moment. Uh, and then, whereas people had previously seen themselves as in the natural world, um, you gradually began to see this kind of division that, that emerges, partly cultural roots, partly philosophical roots, partly anthropological roots, uh, between nature and, uh, and culture, these become kind of two separate and, and discrete uh, objects. And to some extent, we're still dealing with the legacy of that, that kind of, those forms of, of dichotomous uh, thinking. And so one of the things it seems to me is that we can certainly think of um, a number of uh, solutions uh, to 
make our cities more habitable, uh, to make them more resilient, uh, to make them more sustainable. Uh, but I think as part of that particular project, one of the things we've got to think about uh, is the role of culture, is the role of language, is the role of literature, is the role of stories uh, in, in doing this. Because one of the greatest, uh, if you like, dilemmas uh, that we've faced in the past decade or two is that um, one of the things that sustains climate denial has not been evidence. The evidence has been overwhelmingly uh, pointing in the other uh, direction. But what sustained climate denial was storytelling, was myth-making, uh, was constructing versions uh, of uh, reality, nature, culture, and, and, and so on. So I think one of the things that, uh, and we tend to think, I think, sometimes in a slightly kind of naive, uh, enlightened way, that if we produce enough evidence um, that eventually uh, this will be the deciding uh, factor. I think one of the other things we've got to think about is what the role uh, of culture is. Um, if we're going to talk about a look at behavior or anthropological uh, change, uh, one of the things we've got to think about then is what kinds of things do we have at our disposal uh, that will allow these kinds of changes uh, to uh, take place. Um, one of the things that um, is, uh, when people are describing uh, the contemporary economic moment, um, they often say that we're living in the moment of the attention economy. But the thing is, the kind of scarcest commodity of all uh, in our economy is uh, your attention. That's why Google, if you like, gives you ostensibly this extraordinarily powerful uh, tool on your desktop uh, to use, because you, of course, are the most val valuable product of all, uh, your uh, attention. So the idea of instrumentalizing attention, of capturing uh, our attention, uh, is seen as something that is an important economic uh, driver. But one of the things that over a century ago, William James, uh, one of the kind of founding fathers of psychology pointed out, is that we are bombarded uh, with thousands and thousands of sensations, uh, ideas, uh, opinions uh, all the time. This, there's a constant barrage. Um, but he says what we do is out of all those things that are kind of impacting our attention, we select particular things to pay attention uh, to. Um, so in other words, that uh, we pay attention, we select to pay attention to certain things, uh, and because we pay attention to certain things, we select them. This is kind of a dialectical uh, process. So one of the questions that we can ask ourselves then is, what are the kinds of things uh, that force us uh, to pay uh, attention? Well, one of the things um, that forces us to pay attention is the very words uh, that we, we use. And I want to mention in this context um, a uh, book by a man called uh, Robert uh, McFarlane, uh, Landmarks, that came out uh, in 2015. Um, at the beginning of his book, he talks about the Oxford Junior Dictionary. So um, the book um, that is seen to be the kind of standard lexical reference work uh, for uh, young people. Um, and they brought out a, a new edition uh, a number of years ago. Um, and they decided that certain words were no longer worthy of attention. They were no longer worthy of inclusion, if you like, uh, in the Oxford Junior Dictionary. So these words included acorn, adder, ash, beech, Bluebell, buttercup, catkin. This is the major reference dictionary for children in the English language. <laughs> uh, kingfisher, lark, mistletoe, nectar, newt, otter, pasture, and, uh, and willow. Um, one of the things, that the arguments that um, MacFarlane makes is that the, one of the consequences of this is that eventually landscape becomes landscape. Uh, rather than having, if you like, a kind of vocabulary, having, a, a, if you like, a language to engage with the world, you end up with these very generic words like hill, uh, valley, uh, field, and, and so on. So the kind of the history, uh, the specificity, uh, the sense of context that's invested in particular words and the histories that attach to those words uh, begin to uh, disappear. Um, so one of the things, if you like, in constructing a different regime of attention um, is you have to pay attention to language. Why are we living in a world of fake news? Uh, why are we living uh, in a world where the present or the most powerful country on earth can tell an average of 14 uh, lies a day. Uh, we are living in this world because uh, one of the 
if you like, the genial inventions of that particular movement uh, was to rhetorically construct a different kind of world. They paid attention to language when we didn't. Uh, so one of the things that I would, uh, if you like, argue when we think about uh, how we uh, look at the city uh, and how we sort of, if you like, invest ourselves uh, in, in, the, in the detail and the fabric of the city, it's to look at the kinds of writers uh, who have written about the environment, uh, the natural world, the implication of the city and the natural world. So we have Michael Longley on Belfast, with Patrick Kavanagh, who's written uh, about Dublin, with Paul Meehan, who's written extensively about the suburbs, and I'll come to that uh, point in, in a moment. Uh, we have uh, Lee Hall, uh, who's written about uh, nature in Cork City, and uh, large towns in, in Kerry. Um, and what all of those uh, writers do is uh, they bring their language or languages to bear in a very detailed way on the environment uh, that is, uh, is, a, is around them. Uh, so if you like, in order to construct uh, an alternative regime of attention, uh, a regime of attention where there's room for both uh, humans and the, the, the non-human, one of the things we've got to think about are what are the kinds of languages uh, that are available to us. And one of the crucial groups in all of this uh, one of the most uh, underrepresented, uh, ignored uh, minorities in the society are children. Um, because one of the things about children's literature, when we talk about the notion of habituating people uh, to a different conception of the wild, uh, to a different way of thinking uh, about animals, insects, and so on, and one of the things we've got to think about is the role of children's literature uh, in doing that. In other words, uh, there's one sense in which children's literature is one of those few areas where humans seem to engage in conversation uh, with uh, other species. Uh, so this is the, 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 the bright, more hopeful side of children's literature. There's another dimension to children's literature where it's seen as, as a way of kind of just domesticating uh, nature of, of kind of anthropocentric projection onto the world. But there are changing voices, there are changing trends now in children's literature. And one of the things um, that it can do is precisely at such a crucial, important, formative age, alter, change those regimes of attention uh, for, for children. And one of the things, for example, is why is there so little outdoors thinking uh, going on in our schools. I mean, most of you will remember the rather forlorn nature trip in your primary school where you were dragged out on a wet uh, Monday, uh, taken through two or three uh, fields and so on. Uh, and usually by the time you get to secondary school, uh, unless you specialise uh, in, in biology, the leaving certificate becomes a very, very distant uh, memory. We spend a great deal of our time in buildings like this, in enclosed uh, spaces. One of the points I was making in this recent book on the Irish uh, language and ecology, why are Irish language classes always conducted inside? Uh, when the Irish language is all around us in the natural world, every single aspect of the landscape has been described for over 2,000 years in that language, and yet children are locked into these kind of boxes of grammatical terror uh, and never allowed uh, to see that language or to engage uh, with the outside world uh, through that uh, language. Um, one of the um, dangers, I often think, when we talk about the, 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 the city is that the tendency to think of the city as what is just around us here uh, in Trinity uh, College. Um, there was a number, uh, a number of years ago, there was a collection of poems and songs produced called If Ever You Go, uh, a map of Dublin and poetry and song. So it's basically a kind of collection of poems and songs in the English language um, about Dublin uh, city. Um, I went through this uh, anthology um, and I counted up 31 poems in the Liffey side section. Right? So this is the section that basically dealt with uh, the uh, city centre. There was 108 poems about the north side uh, of the, uh, the city, and 206 poems, surprise, surprise, about the south side uh, in, this, uh, in this book. But then when I began to look at the, uh, the, the book more carefully, uh, where does the north side begin? Uh, it begins in O'Connell Street, a poem about and where does the south side begin? The south side begins in Westmoreland Street. 
and it goes all the way from Westmoreland Street to Cabin Keeley. Uh, in the north side section, it goes uh, from uh, O'Connell Street uh, to, uh, to Hope. Um, and of course, one of the things that that, um, if you like, book, I think, vividly and eloquently demonstrates is that when we talk about uh, the city of Dublin, when we talk about Dublin, um, I think we've got to be aware of a certain kind of uh, urban fixation and to think about a suburban reality. If you think, for example, of somebody who's seen as the emblematic uh, urban writer of Dublin, uh, James Joyce, and then you think about what were the main kind of loci, the places of action in Ulysses? Uh, they're in Sandy Cove, they're in Dorky, they're in Sandymount, they're in Glasnevin, they're in Holt, right? Um, so the great kind of bard of the city, in fact, is a suburban uh, bard. Um, and one of the things that is very, very striking about, um, and you see, for example, uh, vividly illustrated in the work of, of writers like Paul and Meehan, is the extent to which this um, is a city, um, what I call a metonymic city. It's a, it's a kind of city of parts. The part comes to encapsulate the whole. The metaphorical city is Paris, the city of light. Rome, the city of God. London, the city of, of finance. But what you find in, in Dublin, when you read through the, the literature on people written about the city of Dublin, is that there's an intense investment in particular kinds of local uh, identities. And it seems to me is that particular investment in forms of, of local identities uh, that provides uh, a sense of ecological uh, hope. Uh, in other words, it's the development of that kind of uh, local or placed uh, fidelity uh, and to use, as common ground has done in England, to use myths, songs, uh, stories, uh, rhymes, uh, verses around those particular places as a kind of uh, context or uh, a cradling for the emergence of an ecological sensibility, that's going to be much, much more effective. It's the kind of co-creation uh, that we talked about earlier. That, that, that is going to be much more effective than a kind of an instrumentalist uh, administrative uh, imposition uh, of, of, a, of a form of, um, of abstraction which tends to dog a great deal of the literature on the ecological crisis. Um, it's quite understandable why there's a, a literature of, of necessary abstraction um, that surrounds the description of what's uh, happening to us. But we urgently and vividly need the kind of graphic tales and stories uh, that will capture the kinds of futures that we, ha we have uh, ahead of us. But I think um, I was told to shut up after nine minutes, so I think I'm going to do so now. Thank you.